is Cup of Care, a podcast series about Canadian family caregivers, their diversity, their roles, their experiences, and what they've learned that might help us each see care in a new way. In this show, we keep things grounded in real experience and remember that those experiences are unique from one person to another. In each episode, we'll meet a new family caregiver and chat with them over a cuppa. Welcome to the Family Caregiving Series. My name is Sibtain. I have just completed my final year of my undergraduate degree in physiology and pharmacology, and I'm trying to pursue a career in healthcare and have a unique interest in the different perspectives of healthcare and what they may look like for different people. And I'm Catherine, but everyone calls me Katie. I'm a PhD student in psychology with many interests focused around people's lived experience of significant transitions. I'm passionate about learning from older adults and their families, be that through my research or volunteer work. Each Cup of Care episode has three segments. First, we'll introduce the topic of the day. Then we'll speak with a family caregiver who will share their story with us. And finally, we'll conclude by reflecting on what we've learned. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Rena about her experience as a family caregiver for a friend. So far, everyone we've talked to has been biological family to the person they're caring for. But not all family caregivers are biological family members. This is true. But 20% of older adult family caregivers in Canada provide care to a friend, colleague, or neighbor. There are many reasons that friends or neighbors take on a caregiving role, including the person receiving care, not having family nearby, or having a strained relationship with family. Sometimes this caregiving represents a progression of an existing relationship, perhaps a way of giving back. Other times caregiving is the source of the relationship, such as when a neighbor sees that a person needs help and provides it. I imagine that caregiving for a friend has specific challenges, but also joys. And I look forward to hearing about those through Rina's experiences. Welcome, Rina. We're here today to talk to you about your experience providing care for a person in your life. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Who is this person? Well, my friend, her name is Margaret. She's 97 years old and is really still with it. She has it's sleep apnea, narcolepsy, but even worse than that. And so I met her at church over 30 years ago. She sang in the choir and really enjoyed it. She could drive a car. She'd been married twice, both husbands died, but she never had any children. And so she really didn't have any family. Her brothers were older and she had a few nieces and nephews and a few from her husband, but they all lived in other provinces. She couldn't sing in the choir anymore because she fell asleep. And so she had to quit that. Of course, before that, she had to give up driving. And she just took it all in stride. I always said to her, when I grow up, I want to be like you. So then the more she became that she couldn't go out anymore, I knew she liked to play crib. One time she fell and broke an arm and then a hip. And I said, well, how about to come once a week and I'll come play crib with you? Well, of course, that worked. And every Wednesday night, I go over and play crib with her. She was a teacher. And she's very interested in all things going around her. She lives close by here. And her neighbor next door kind of adopted her. I look after the financial things. And she looks after the medical things. So Margaret is almost like an older sister or a mother to me. And she really is a wonderful lady. She just, it's unbelievable 
all the trouble she's had, just imagine you lose driving. You can't sing in the choir. You can't live in your house anymore because as soon as she stood up, she'd fall down asleep. She'd just if she wanted to read the paper, holding, just looking at it, standing at the table, she'd fall asleep. And so, but never, never, ever complained. It's, that's so amazing. One of her nieces was her power of attorney, but she died four or five years ago. And then Margaret said, would you be my power of attorney? And I said, well, Margaret, that's a big thing. You know, I don't mind doing that. But do you, do you see, if you give me power of attorney, I have power over everything, everything that you own. And she said, that's why I asked you. I trust you. And so that was, yeah, that was really good. Like, you know, I said, okay. So of course we had to go to the bank and the lawyer and whatever. And that time she was still able to get in the access bus and we could do things like that. And so from then on, I've always been her power of attorney and whatever she needs, I make sure that she has it. If she needs clothing, we order clothing for her. All her bills get paid. And if something changes, then they'll phone and say, we need to do something different. So that's basically Margaret. You've touched on it somewhat, but what are some of the main ways that you support Margaret? Well, like I said, if she needs clothing, who's going to get clothing for her? There's no way she can do that. She donates money to everything. If, if anybody asks for anything, well, if you were willing to send a letter, then she will send $10. Well, she had maybe 100 of these little charities. And that was getting too much even for the accountant. So then I had said to her, well, Margaret, what about if we add up all the money that you donate and can we donate it in two or three or lump sums, maybe? So that was okay. It's that type of thing. It's all those little details and all of the negotiation. And it's so hard. She always took care of her own money. She always had money. Now having money in a lodge is not a good idea because residents walk into her room think it's their room and then of course money goes missing and so that is so difficult for her I'm even having a hard time now with that I feel so bad for her she says but I go to church at the lodge and I have no money to put on the plate and that's a habit she had all her life I said well what would you like to donate could we then just send a check well that was a good idea and that works so those are the tiny, it's only tiny little things, but, and she feels good about if she has a problem, she can tell me. So she feels comfortable with that. And yeah, sometimes when you see that she really needs something, you can phone the staff and say, look, you're not doing this for her. We don't always think about caregiving as creative, but you're describing really a high level of creativity associated with caregiving. They also have a shopping cart that comes around once a week that has soft drinks, like you can buy one can of pop or a chocolate bar. And of course, whenever the cart comes along, she says, I have no money. And some of the staff then don't say, but Margaret, you can charge up because that's how the agreement is. She can charge and it goes onto her account. And then once a month, I get the bill. It goes automatically off her account, but I can see how much she pays for her to care and whatever all she needs, like, you know. So then, so I, a couple of weeks ago, I had the phone again because I said, she's not getting a drink. She thinks she hasn't got the money. 
will you make sure that all your staff know? So I want them to know that Margaret can have whatever she wants within reason. Otherwise, she'll go take five, ten chocolate bars or whatever, like, you know, and then she just, not that she will eat them, but it's good to have in her room if somebody comes to visit, like, you know. We're hoping that that problem is solved. And if not, you know, we'll have to check once a month and say, okay, how is that going? Because I can see there's nothing going out of her account. She's not charging up again, of course. So. So I always think, what would I like? And so in my mind, I would be like to do it all. And so we try to do or as much as we can do together with her TV now. She had cable. She had everything. She even had internet that she was paying for, and she didn't have an appliance for internet. So once I took over as power of attorney, I, I checked all these things and then phoned the company upset. But her bill is so high, she's only got a, one plain old phone and TV and just a basic kind of, oh, yeah, but she's paying for, you name it, she was paying for it. So I said, okay, let's cut it down a little bit. And she did like TV, but she kept messing up the remote. And how do you fix that? I can't go over 10 times a day. And, of course, the staff was getting so tired of trying to get her remote working again. And so then for a while, I thought, I don't think she's been watching at all because she couldn't get the remote to work. So I hung a kind of a curtain. It was Christmas time, kind of a nice Christmas curtain over the TV screen. And every time I came, it had never been moved. So I knew she didn't watch TV. I didn't ask her because then she would say, I need it. But we canceled her TV. We made sure that she has a really good phone. And even now she's getting older and she has a hard time hearing. It's hard for her to dial anything. I could cut that off too. But to me, then that's important that she has a say in it. It's her care. You're describing a relationship that's pretty much the same as any other family caregiver relationship. So that says to me that maybe we're making a false distinction. Yes, that's one thing with COVID. They were only allowing a family member. Well, Margaret has no family member. We have to phone and say, look, if she only can have one, we'll, then we'll do the other lady because she had lived beside him for many more years. She's not a family member, but to us, we're her family members. We're her caregivers. We're her power of attorney. So then the lodge had to change that a little bit that, yes, it couldn't always be a biological family member, you know, she was allowed one or two people and always the same, which was fine for us. Like, you know. How does being a caregiver balance into all the other aspects of your life, of all the things that you like to do and how you like to spend your time? How does that kind of fit in there? Pretty good. I've been doing this for a long time. So my husband was still alive. My children, well, they're married now, but they were much younger. But they knew Wednesday night was Margaret's night. And if something important came up that I needed to do with them, then we would change the night. And you know, they just think of Margaret as our family member. We just include her. I love doing it because I love her. I think that's maybe the difference. Just because she is not a biological family member, it's like a family member. I've adopted her. She's adopted me. So it works fine. I, it's I never even think about it, like, you know, that, oh, this is taking time away. No, it's not taking time, but I love to do. That's all there's to it. 
I used to be a cub leader. I used to be in the PTA. You name it, I did all that. And then my children got older. Then I went started volunteering in a nursing home. And so that's how it happened. I just love volunteering in a nursing home. Thank goodness they're starting again. I can go for a music program or whatever. It's so nice to see the residents. A lot of them, of course, are not there anymore. But the ones that are there, oh, they're so happy to see you and said, oh, I miss you so, so. It's something I love to do. What's the most challenging part of being a family caregiver, either in general or to a friend? Uh, Nothing really much because... Before, when she lived at an apartment, then, of course, you it was different. You had to make sure that she had, she did get her meals there, but excess things like, you know, but now that she's in, the, she's in the lodge, all her needs are pretty well taken care of, except sometimes when I see her hair is not nice or she's not dressed properly or they're putting her to bed at 6.30 at night when I know she doesn't like that. Those kind of things. And Margaret still can tell me what is happening if they're not nice to her when they put her in the bathtub or if they're not nice to her that they snap at her like, you know, and then those things then we can work out between the staff and, you know, that I'll phone and say, there's a problem here, but can we talk about this? And so, yes. And then the other lady that helps look after her, she'll phone me or I'll phone her. And between the two of us, we'll have a little meeting with the staff. It's interesting that there's actually a shared responsibility for caregiving in this situation. And none of you are actually, quote unquote, biological family, but you both have this very strong investment in being family caregivers. I always think, how do I want to be treated? Because eventually, who knows, I might end up in a lodge. Of course, I have family, so I'm okay there. But to us, Margaret is our family. She just, you know, that's, we, we just grew with each other, kind of like. I was born in Holland, and I came over with my parents when I was 12, so we left all our family behind. So I didn't ever grow up with any grandparents or aunts or uncles. And so I don't know if that made a difference, but to me, Margaret just, like I said, she could be my mother, she could be my older sister, like, you know, it's just something, it was so nice that I, that I have her, and, you know, What's the most rewarding part of being a family caregiver? Her smiles. She'll say sometimes to me, if I really don't feel that I'm happy here or whatever, you'll make sure that I'm going to be okay, right? You know, it's just so that she knows she has someone that she can talk to and try to fix it up for her. But my biggest thing, her smiles, just seeing and then when we play games and she beats me, boy. I know about it, like, you know, so it's it just her happiness. What do you wish you'd known earlier about being a family caregiver? That I also have rights that if there's a problem with my person, like my husband or my parent or, or Margaret now, that I can speak up for her and insist well, that, that it's looked after like her not being dressed or her not having money or whatever, like, you know, or her being put in bed at first. No, you kind of go by their rules. No, their rules aren't always acceptable rules, like putting her to bed at seven o'clock when they knew I was going to be there. So for me, it's a learning all the time. Like, you know, I learned as I went along.
for for people that are also in in a relationship similar to you and and, and your friend, and um, what advice would you give to them? Maybe if their relationship is now starting to strain a little bit, or maybe the pressures of care is starting to affect their relationship. What advice would you give them to maybe better their relationship or to maintain it? With my parents, my mom, she had dementia. And in the beginning, she would ask me 10 times the same thing. And of course, I got a little bit snappy and said, I already told you that. But then I had to learn if she knew that she was doing this, she wouldn't do it. I had to learn to accept that. And same with Margaret. Is sometimes if she's a little bit out of sorts, sitting in a wheelchair all day, not having any money. She does have money, but not she can't get her hands onto it. Having to eat when they tell you, having to do whatever. It's, you know, then if she doesn't want to go to a program, they'll come and take her out anyway. Like it's so it's hard. So you have to learn to kind of live with it. And if so, if she's upset about something, like I said, then we'll talk about it and say, I'll try tell her, well, maybe we can we fix it? Can we do something? What do you think? Like, you know, the longer you are together, it just kind of goes automatically. Like even the staff will phone and say, there's something not quite right with Margaret, or can you come in because Margaret is upset or something. It just goes so gradually, you don't even think about it. It's automatic. You know, when I see she needs something, it's an automatic thing. Putting yourself in their shoes, trying to understand. That's the biggest thing. Yeah, what they're going through and why it's so difficult. Mm -hmm. That's a really really good way of looking at it. I always say you should walk a mile in someone else's shoes, well, especially Mm. with people in nursing homes or people that need care i can't imagine not being in my own house she had to give up her car she had to give up her house she had to give up singing in the choir now she had to give up going to church it's mm-hmm. awful no wonder mm-hmm. you're, you're down in the dump sometimes thank you so much for agreeing to be part of this project but i'm glad that both of you are doing this kind of thing because before this was never talked about so i want to thank you both for that also Okay, so once again, Rina, thank you so much for your responses. Thank you so much for your time. I just want to summarize kind of what I took away from what you shared with us. So for me, I think that the whole point of this podcast was to try to understand what being a family caregiver really means and how not all of the time it's going to be, you know, biological or direct family, how important autonomy is in that relationship and the amount of effort that you put in to making sure that your friend or the person you're giving care for is involved in that process is a lot. I mean, you dedicate a lot of time to this. You make sure that everything that you do is always run by her first to make sure that you still feel like you're making the correct decision. And still you describe sometimes you feel a little guilty that maybe you're not involving her enough. So kind of finding that balance um, can be tricky, can be a little difficult, but it is really important to find. I I highlight many of the same things you just described. How do we creatively solve problems? And for me and my lived experience, sometimes it is about thinking a little bit differently or going like, okay, this is clearly an issue. How do we navigate this together? How do we think through this in a different way? We spend a lot of time assuming that 
we should be able to do everything on our own. But yet we can't do it all on our own and we probably shouldn't be trying to do it all on our own. We all need help and support at various points in our lives. And so as a result, we need to acknowledge that. The impact of listening to people's unique stories is really the whole purpose of this Cup of Care series. During our next episode, Katie and I will be sitting down with another family caregiver to learn their story. And we promise you it won't be quite like anything else you've heard before. Well, thanks so much for listening to the show this week. And if you're a family caregiver, thanks for all the work you do and for taking time to be with us today. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts or watch for these and other resources at appliedinterprofessionalresearch.com and www.spaltc.ca. This series is produced in collaboration with creative partners from the Strengthening of Palliative Approach and Long-Term Care Team and Saskatchewan Long-Term Care Network. Advisory support for this project was provided by Dr. Natasha Hubbard-Murdoch from Saskatchewan Polytechnic and Dr. Paulette Hunter from St. Thomas Brown College. Technical support was provided by Media Production Specialist Greg Olson from Audio Visual Services at Saskatchewan Polytechnic. In addition to Saskatchewan Polytechnic's financial contribution, production of this podcast has been made possible through a financial contribution from Health Canada. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. Lastly, as with many things in life, this project would not have been possible without the direct contribution of family caregivers. Thank you.